Life is meaningful. You are real. This is quantum consciousness. Please like the video, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment below, and write a review. Join me inside the mystery of numbers. Come and hop for metaphysical news. See how concepts become objects and then become quantum. Join us for an episode of quantum consciousness. Hello. My name is Justin Riddle, and I'll be talking to you today about quantum consciousness. Welcome back to episode four, and the topic of today is theories of quantum mechanics. So I'll be talking about the predominant theories that are out there, and then sort of going off the deep end a little bit into some of the more fringe ideas related to quantum mechanics. Um... But really, I just can't resist. It's too much fun. Alrighty, so in the previous video, I set up the three-world model by Roger Penrose, the physical world of measurements, the mental world of subjective experiences um, relating to superposition, and then the platonic world of forms, concepts, mathematics, and meaning. And this may have some grounding in the principles of entanglement. So check out episode three for those sort of connections and previous episodes for introducing um, the three world model. So I'm going to organize today's discussion of these different theories in line with the three world model because it sort of gives us a nice framework to go from one to the next. All right, so starting off with what I think is the most simple form of, uh, of a quantum mechanical theory. This is the many worlds hypothesis. And this is sort of, uh, in my book, the most physically constrained notion of quantum mechanics. So the idea here is that you have a quantum system. Let's use the photon as an example. And it has a wave function where it goes into multiple possible future realities. And then when you measure it, it gets reduced into one of those different possibilities. Well, in the many worlds theory, the wave function splitting out of different possible futures is entirely different parallel universes. So as the photon is heading towards the two slits, there's this unfolding of all these different parallel realities that are all coexisting and sort of splitting off from each other. And then when you measure it, uh, the photon to be here or there, um, that's just because you're in that universe, right? So there's a universe where the photon goes to the left slit, a universe where the photon goes to the right slit. And if you measure the photon at the right slit, it just means that you're in that universe and not in the universe where it went through the left slit. So all of your decisions, actions, everything that happens is this forking off of all possible futures. And I think the many worlds theory is really popular in a lot of um, pop culture. Um, essentially, a lot of people hear about quantum mechanics as all these parallel universes coexisting. Um, I personally find this a very uh, unsatisfactory theory of, <laughs> of reality because it essentially means that none of your choices matter. You're just along for the ride and, you know, the house you live in, the person you're dating, the job you have, everything that you've ever done in your life is really just um, 
some random decision and you didn't really make a decision. You're just one of these different versions of yourself. And there's all these parallel versions of yourself out there living entirely different lives. Um, and so why would people want to believe the many worlds uh, hypothesis? Well, essentially because you get to ignore a lot of the weirdness of quantum mechanics, right? So when you measure in the double slit experiment, there's the collapse of the wave function where the wave function goes from this probability landscape into a specific physical reality. In the many world hypothesis, you can just ignore, you know, the distinction between the superposition level and the measurement level and just say, oh, they're really just all the same thing. It's just this splitting off of multiple worlds. So I put this in the physical world bin because all you have is physical worlds and just a lot of them. And you get to ignore the collapse of the wave function. You get to ignore a lot of that cyclic um, wave function, particle, wave, particle, wave, particle, that, that cyclical nature of an evolving quantum mechanical system. And you just reduce it into um, essentially billions upon billions of trillions of different possible realities. And they all are realities. There's no possible realities. There's just a bunch of parallel realities. You get rid of the distinction between possibility and reality by just making every possible reality a separate reality. <laughs> okay, moving on. The Copenhagen interpretation. And this is probably one of the most mainstream theories on, um, on quantum mechanics. And the idea here is that this is a subjective reduction of the wave function. So as the wave function evolves, the measurement comes in and it measures that wave function and it collapses the wave function. And so the measuring device is the one collapsing that wave function. What does this mean? Um, Einstein has the famous quote, uh, if you stop looking at the moon, does it cease to exist? And the idea here is that if we all turned our heads and didn't look at the moon, would it just go into a superposition of multiple possible realities and then it would never really exist because it never got measured? Okay, so the, the idea here is that you necessarily have another system interacting with the system to force it to collapse into this or that um, state. And so one of the one of the ideas core to the Copenhagen interpretation is this idea of entropy and randomness. So when you measure the system, the measuring device is making an impact on that system. And it's sort of inherently a random process because it's an environmental influence impinging on the system and then changing the system. So this gives rise to a lot of chaos where you're making a real impact on another system and they're all chaotically interacting and bumping into each other. And the, the theories after the Copenhagen interpretation still use a lot of these same principles, but they also allow for, for additional forms of collapse, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but one of the primary ideas in the Copenhagen uh, interpretation is this notion of entropy and randomness. And there's this entropic force in the universe where all these systems are chaotically collapsing each other. 
And so chaos is increasing, entropy is increasing, and in the Copenhagen interpretation, the, the notion of entropy increasing through time is really sort of a fundamental um, outcome of this viewpoint. And so to give an example of what this means, if I take an egg and I drop it on the ground and it splatters, um, there's no way for me to put that egg back together again. It's really just a one directional, you know, it's a one way street into chaos, into destruction. Um, and so if left unchecked, the forces of entropy, um, also known as the second law of thermodynamics, that entropy is increasing, um, is that we're going towards a destruction of the universe eventually because of all the chaotic and tropic increase over time. So what, what's the shortcomings of this? Well, if we look around us in the universe, we see that actually the world is getting more and more complex. On the planet Earth, we're getting more advanced life forms, a la humans. If you look out in the galaxy, you see that there's this evolution of even galactic shapes. So early galaxies are little balls, and then later galaxies are the spiral galaxies. So there's even an increase in complexity over time. And so what in this um, subjective collapse of the wave function thing, you know, measuring devices measuring each other, this inherently chaotic process, um, there's nothing really pushing for order or pushing um, against this law of entropy. And while modern physics, a lot of people view this as sort of a staple that entropy is increasing, um, it seems like in the universe around us, there's actually a trend in the opposite direction. So what could explain that? All right, so I put this sort of halfway between the physical and the mental world because essentially the Copenhagen interpretation is measuring devices, um, measuring things into the physical world. So it's kind of all about that interface between a wave function in the mental world and a physical measuring device in the physical world. All right, so the next theory is the self-collapse theory. And this is um, an idea by Roger Penrose, and I find this very fascinating. And I think this isn't quite uh, a mainstream opinion, but it's very much worth considering. So the idea here is that a superposition is a fundamental blister or rupture in space-time. So you have this possible reality and this other possible reality, and they're held in superposition together, and these two worlds, or these two uh, space-time realities, are coexisting within the wave function, but they're inherently unstable, and Roger Penrose argues that they actually have uh, a gravitational influence on each other. And so there's this instability inherent in any superposition. And so what he argues is that there is a certain threshold for objective reduction. So in the Copenhagen interpretation, it's subjective because you have a subject and an object, two things interacting with each other. In objective reduction, there is within a single wave function, a level of complexity that you will reach where the wave function becomes 
so unstable that it then self-collapses into a particular physical decision or physical reality, okay? So the implications of objective reduction are that this is a sort of less chaotic way of collapsing the wave function because it's not contingent on some environmental influence, but based on the internal workings of a system, if left alone, it will reach its own objective reduction. So if you leave a photon in the void of space, nothing interacts with it, it's in a vacuum, you know, I don't know the exact numbers or calculation on when a single photon in the void would collapse, but eventually that all the possible realities that the photon is splitting off into would become complex enough and have enough influence on each other that it would then collapse into an actual physical decision or a physical choice. Um, so this is a measurement process internally generated within the system. Um, and the, the notion here is that you could create much more complex systems. So if we take the quantum computer example, we have a bunch of quantum bits, a large quantum system with many, many possible states. And as it evolves, it reaches that objective reduction threshold much quicker because there's so much more processing going on internally. And there's such a you know, there's such a, a magnitude of increase of generating all these different physical possible realities that it's gonna breach that threshold much faster and then collapse. And so the idea that Roger Penrose puts forth, and this is in collaboration with Stuart Hameroff, is that in biology, there's been some, or there's been a push in evolution to create these quantum computers or these isolated, insulated quantum systems where they receive inputs from the environment and then they self-isolate, they form a protected region, and then the wave function evolves internally, breaches some objective reduction threshold internally, collapses down into a physical state, and then it projects that output back into the world. And this is a way to have quantum computation instantiated internally and it's sort of reaching its own conclusion, right? It's not dependent upon an outside observer coming in and measuring the system, but it's a way of internally generating, um, internally generating an output. And so Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff claim that this is the basis of consciousness, that consciousness is an objective reduction of a wave function such that in this completely uh, sort of self-looping way, the, the system is able to generate all these possible realities or possible choices to be made and then internally makes that decision and collapses the wave function. And Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff argue that this is a moment of consciousness. A moment of consciousness is an objective reduction of the wave function such that it's internally generated, it has that sort of self-continuity where once it collapses, the next state that evolves is dependent on the previous state, and this would give rise to a series of nows, a series of moments of experience um, created through this internal process. 
Um, so it has a lot of the the flavor of what of what you know we would think that consciousness might might require. Um, and I'm going to go more into how they think this is happening um, in in some episodes in the future on biology. Um, how could you instantiate something like this? Uh, but we're going to move on for now because the theory here is objective reduction self collapse, and this uh, is put in the mental world because it's really the the most you know internally consistent mental mental process, if you will, um, where you're self collapsing your own wave function, building some computational process into the future. Um, and one other notion that they put forth is that this is a truly low entropy process where you're taking information in, computing a future, and then selecting the best possible option based on that computational process, and then putting that output back into the environment. And this is an inherently um, syntropic or anti-entropy process, right? Where you're actually taking in chaotic information, computing a solution or an answer, and then outputting a solution. Um, and so this might be some mechanism to counteract entropy. Um, and they would argue this is really one of these fundamental evolutionary forces that kind of flies in the face of, of chaos and is constructively in a generative way building the future through some meaningful computational process as opposed to just chaotically responding and getting measured by things out there. All right, so that was probably the bulk of the new information for those of you listening. Um, and then there are a few additional theories that I'm going to tap into briefly. Now, I'm going to jump up into the platonic world, and I'm going to talk about David Bohm. So David Bohm has this theory called um, the implicate order. Um, he also calls it the holographic movement of the universe, <laughs> which is kind of a, uh, a wild notion. But the idea here is that there are, um, through entanglement, there's a bunch of hidden variables, these universal global hidden variables. And the way of thinking about this theory is that there's just essentially a lot of information and infrastructure at this level of entanglement that is sort of unifying the whole system together. In the implicate order, all your actions are sort of going into and querying this level of entanglement. So when I was talking about self-collapse and the wave function building up all these processes, making a decision, and then enacting that decision, um, David Bohm would say that there's these global universal influences in the entanglement domain, and this adds a level of that perceived randomness, right? And it's kind of a reference to complexity, but the implicate order maintains all of these meaningful structures and information that influences every system in the universe so that when you decide to make a decision in this local quantum mechanical system, it needs to go through the entanglement realm. And the entanglement realm 
sort of checks it against these universal influences, right? These hidden variables that are sort of unknown to us, um, hence hidden. And essentially, it's it's the local uh, wave function mapping into an entanglement web, and that is shaping how it's able to make its um, its selection. And it's perceived as chaotic or random because we don't know all those variables. And so we're unable in like a scientific sense to understand why it's getting pushed in one direction or another, um, but it is getting pushed. And Henry Stapp also talks about this. It's sort of at the interface between the mental and the platonic, but if you have some free will built into that self-collapse where the entity, the quantum computer, is making a decision to do something, that decision then needs to get filtered through the universal lens, this platonic realm, this entanglement web, and then after being filtered through that entanglement domain, then it is able to be manifested into the physical world. So there's sort of a universality filter that your decisions are going through. You decide, I want to do this, and then your decision then gets noticed or gets imprinted into the implicit order, and then the reality of what can actually happen from that decision then is manifested. Um, so that, that's kind of the notion. This is like the quantum computer or the mental world mapping into this platonic universal entanglement domain and then getting projected down into the physical realm. And I want to mention a couple uh, sort of out there fun theories, which I think uh, have a meaningful implication to this. One of them is obviously Plato's world of forms. This is the idea that there are these universal truths and these universal concepts and ideas are embedded in the platonic realm in this entanglement um, implicit order. Um, another is Carl Jung's collective unconsciousness. This is the idea that there is these archetypal shapes and forms, once again, at this collective or platonic entanglement domain. And as um, an individual system or quantum computer is interfacing with this platonic world, you're tapping into these archetypal forms, these archetypal experiences, and this sort of unconscious influence where your decisions being filtered through the entanglement web are being filtered through the collective unconsciousness. And so you can imagine the collective unconsciousness is the web of entanglements. All mental entities forming these entanglements with each other create a collective, and that collective is unconsciously influencing us as our decisions are filtered through the platonic world. And so, yeah, this is sort of uh, a bit wacky and, and uh, I think very exciting and fun. Um, but the idea presented by Carl Jung, and I'll go into this more in a future episode, is that there's this collective influence, you know. This arrow coming out of the mental world into the platonic world is sort of the emergence of the platonic from the mental. And this is, you know, just a hypothesis or an idea but that from the web of interactions between mental entities, the entanglement web is created and generated, and that entanglement represents the collective. Um, and so platonic forms, universal truth, may be instantiated through 
this, uh, this collective web. All right, and I want to end on one final concept, which I find super fascinating. The laws of physics govern the physical, right? The physical world is happening according to the laws of physics. And so the arrow from the platonic to the physical is just that. It's the, the rules and the laws governing the physical world. Now, Wolfgang Pauli and Carl Jung were working together on a theory of synchronicity based in quantum mechanics. So synchronicity is the experience of meaningful coincidences that don't seem possible. And so, yeah, this is definitely a little, a little woo-woo, but the idea is that, you know, you think of your friend and then they call you, um, or you're thinking of a song and then someone is humming that song and there's no possible way that they could know that you were thinking about that song. Right. A lot of the times there's like a simple explanation, but um, a lot of people have experiences that seem anomalous and seem to defy physical causality. And so uh, Carl Jung and Wolfgang Pauli were using the idea of entanglement and the connection between the platonic entanglement world into the physical world and saying what would happen if entanglement was manifested physically, maybe that would look like synchronicity to us. So as these entanglement relationships, these spaceless, timeless connections between things are happening in the physical world, we would see them and say, wow, that's a non-causal or an a-causal event. These two events don't have a causal link, and yet the physical events seem to be connected. So if entanglement is driving physical events, then perhaps the experience of seeing entanglement in the physical world might feel like or be perceived as synchronicity. So I'll leave you with this uh, bizarre notion um, and we can talk further in a future video. But I hope you enjoyed a discussion of the different theories in quantum mechanics the many worlds hypothesis of all these different worlds splitting off, subjective reduction in the Copenhagen interpretation of things measuring each other, the self-collapse of the wave function internally generated by Roger Penrose, these theories by Henry Stapp and David Bohm about how the system makes a decision and then it gets filtered through this universal, this implicate order of, of this entanglement web. And then these fun notions of uh, synchronicity uh, potentially emerging from a connection between entanglement into the physical world. All right, next week I will be introducing digital computers. And uh, yeah, we'll get started on that next week. Talk to you very soon. Bye-bye.